Crime Happens contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Happens, where we uncover the evil that surrounds us. I'm your host, Chris. With grates over the doors and windows, a chain-link fence surrounding the property, rubbish and old tires scattered around the front yard, 3520 North Marshall Street was a real dump. Beginning on November 26, 1986 to March 24, 1987, six women went in, but only four came out. It was November 26, 1986, the night before Thanksgiving at about 9 p.m., so there weren't many cars on the road. It was cold, dark, and rainy. The woman left her apartment, which was in a slum area of North Philadelphia, and walked up and down Front Street. She was wearing her usual black jeans, black t-shirt, tennis shoes, and a leather jacket. She held her jacket tight to keep the cold out. She had only been here for about 10 minutes before a car slowed down and approached her. It was a tan Cadillac Seville. She thought it looked like a nice car, an expensive car. The car came to a stop and rolled its window down. The woman leaned over and peered in. The man in the car asked her if she was hustling. The woman noticed that he was white with an ordinary face, straight nose, square jaw, wavy brown hair, and a trimmed beard. But what really stood out to her were his eyes. They were a bright blue, very piercing, and it seemed like he had her locked in his stare. He was wearing a brown cowhide jacket with fringe on the sleeves. She told him that she was hustling. He said he wanted to do something and asked her if she could come back to his place. Normally, she would conduct her business in the back seat of the car or maybe at a nearby seedy motel. She was 25 years old and had been hooking for a while. And as a rule, she didn't go to people's homes. He said that because he was six feet tall, it's kind of hard for him to do stuff in the car. While she thought about this, she also noticed that his car had leather upholstery, and it was clean and fresh-smelling. And he did have really long legs. He told her that he would give her 50 bucks and would bring her back in about 30 minutes. Ordinarily, she was pretty strict about not breaking this rule, but the temperature was dropping and she didn't relish the idea of being out in the cold any longer than she had to. With the 50 bucks, She could call it a night and get back to her own warm apartment, get high and relax. Even though she was a little reluctant, she slid into the passenger seat next to him and they headed off. As they pulled away from the curb, he asked her if she had kids. She told him that she did and that was why she would need to get back ASAP. She asked the guy what his name was and he said Gary. He asked her what her name was and she replied Nicole. Her real name is Josefina Rivera, but she always used her street name, Nicole, when she was hustling. As they were driving, the man told her he needed to make a stop before they got down to business. Josefina said okay, and he pulled into a nearby McDonald's. She went in with him and he ordered himself a cup of coffee, but nothing for her. 
He wasn't talking, and it felt awkward, so she tried to make small talk. She asked him again what his name was, and he said Gary Heidnick. While he drank his coffee, Josefina got a good look at her new trick under the bright lights of the restaurant. He wore a Rolex watch, heavy gold chain, and gold cross, but his clothes were cheap, worn, and dirty. His hair was greasy, and he stunk like strong B.O. Finally, he finished his coffee and told her they were leaving. When she asked where they were going, he said they were going to his house. He pulled out of the parking lot and drove deep into the slum district of Philly. He was driving recklessly down streets which had potholes, row houses, and cracked sidewalks. She recognized the area they were in. It was known as the OK Corral, and Heidnick lived in the heart of it. From Philadelphia Daily News, quote, This is not a quiet neighborhood. Only a half block from Heidnick's house is the corner of Marshall and Tioga, one of North Philadelphia's many hotspots for drug dealers. Gunfire is so common that residents call the block the OK Corral. The nickname is even spray-painted on a green dumpster near the corner. At night you hear gunshots and you don't pay any attention. You just roll over and go back to sleep. It's like a dog barking. About a year ago, a man standing on the corner of Marshall and Tioga was killed by a stray bullet from a gunfight over drugs. Witnesses said they heard a shot, saw a red spot appear on the man's forehead, and watched in astonishment as he fell backwards, his hands still in his coat pockets. After that, some people on the block started wearing jackets with the words OK Corral printed on the backs. Residents who are not involved in crime say the drug dealing is wide open on the corner, in the middle of the block. They're always calling, butter, butter, we got butter. Butter being the slang for cocaine. One young man said that at least five dealers operate on the corner, while others are stationed at various spots along the block. Typically, there would be quite a bit of activity and noise. Boom boxes blaring, and teens could also be heard chanting, 40, 40, 40, to advertise the price of a small bag of cocaine on the corner was 40 bucks, unquote. Heidnick's house was surrounded by a chain-link fence, and he drove through an opening into the dilapidated driveway. He had a run-down garage topped with a row of barbed wire to keep trespassers out. The garage doors were lined on the inside with metal. He installed the liners after neighborhood hoodlums shot at the garage, damaging the Cadillac he owned prior to the one he had now. He certainly didn't want that to happen again. The yard was filled with trash and old used tires, and windows were covered with iron bars. Josephina was no stranger to the seedier side of life. Being a hustler and a drug addict for so many years, this was certainly not shocking to her. As Heidnick pulled into his garage, Josephina noticed there was another car parked inside. It was a 1971 Rolls-Royce. Next, Heidnick pulled a key ring out of his pocket and singled out a stubby piece of metal. When Josephina asked him what it was, he told her it was a key. He explained to her that he cut the key in half and left the front half in the lock and kept the back half on his ring. He said that way his key would be the only one that works. He opened the door and stepped into a small kitchen. Josephina immediately noticed that the walls were covered in pennies. He had glued the coins to the wall. 
She couldn't help but think how weird this was. And then he led her into a living room. There was a beat-up old orange couch in there which was stained and sagging. In front of the couch was a stand that had a tape deck, turntable, TV, and VCR. Next to the stand was a cabinet that held tons of videotapes which had handwritten labels. Heidnick asked Josefina if she wanted to watch a movie. She could see that he had a lot of porn, horror, and comedy. It was sheer impulse when she quickly responded with a disgusted, No! Thinking to herself, Hell no! She explained to him that she had to get back, but she could see he looked pissed. She tried to soften her refusal by telling him she had to get home to her kids. But the damage was done and Josefina was beginning to feel uncomfortable. Heidnick guided Josefina up a flight of stairs that led to a narrow hallway. She noticed that the walls were also covered with pennies, and in some places one or five dollar bills. She couldn't help but think to herself, what a weirdo. He directed her into a bedroom that contained a bed and a dresser. He handed Josefina her money, which she placed on the dresser while she got undressed. She took off her shirt and jeans and climbed into bed. Heidnick removed his jeans and underwear, but kept his shirt on. Then he climbed in bed with Josefina, and without saying a word, he started pumping away. He just kept on pumping until he was finished. This was just fine with Josefina, because all she could think about was getting the hell out of there. The sooner, the better. When Heidnick finished doing his business, Josefina got up to put her clothes on. As she was stepping into her jeans, she felt his arm come around her throat from behind and begin choking her. She turned around to look at him, and when she did, she saw his eyes. He looked cold and emotionless as he tightened his grip around her neck. She almost passed out, but before she did, she begged him to stop, saying she would do whatever he wanted. At this point, Heidnick released his grip, and Josefina fell to the floor, gasping for air. While she was trying to catch her breath, Heidnick was putting handcuffs on her. He ordered her to stand up and dragged her past the dresser where he grabbed his money back, stuffing it into his pocket. Then he shoved Josefina out of the bedroom and back down the stairs, through the living room and into the kitchen. Then he opened another door and she saw a second flight of stairs. These were narrower than the first and didn't have a banister. He pushed her again forcing her down into a room that was cold and dank and dimly lit. It was really cold down there and Josefina was feeling it because all she was wearing was her shirt. She didn't get a chance to finish putting her jeans on. She could feel the cold concrete on her feet and began to shiver. It was November after all. He directed her over to a small, bare, dirty mattress which was sitting in the corner of the room. She began to complain that she couldn't see and that her vision was blurry. Heidnick ordered her to shut up. His voice was matter-of-fact and calm. He also picked up a piece of wood that was littering the filthy, junky floor and threatened to hit her with it. So Josefina shut up. Even though she had been hustling for a number of years, she was lucky. She'd never been subjected to physical violence before. It was terrifying. She looked around the room and saw a large freezer, pinball machine and a raggedy old pool table. And then something caught her eye. She suddenly noticed there was a hole in the ground. Holy shit! Someone had dug a hole in the ground. When she saw this, she panicked. Her heart was pounding. Naturally, she was wondering, 
what the hole was for. Was he going to kill her and put her in the hole? Was this going to be her grave? While Josephina was freaking out over this hole in the ground, Heidnick was methodically going about the business of putting muffler clamps on her ankles. He screwed the clamps tight and added some crazy glue for good measure, using a blow dryer to cement the glue. Josephina couldn't help but look on in amazement as this everyday harmless beauty tool was being used in such a horrific manner. Once he had the muffler clamps secure, he attached them to a long chain, which he then looped over a sewer pipe, which ran along the wall and used a padlock to secure the chain. When he finished, he put his head in Josephina's naked lap and went to sleep. Overcome with the effects of pain, exhaustion, and fear, Josephina eventually fell asleep too. Nobody should have to start life the way Josephina did. What happened to her and her siblings is heartbreakingly sad. She was only six weeks old when she, her sister, and her brother were abandoned by their parents. They simply walked away, leaving these poor helpless kids all alone in the apartment to die. The kids were too young to care for themselves, and the only reason they were discovered is because the neighbors heard baby Josephina crying nonstop. When police were called to investigate, they had to break down the apartment door. They found six-week-old Josephina, one-year-old Freddie, and two-year-old Iris alone in the apartment. The kids were freezing cold and hungry. Authorities tried to find their parents but couldn't, so the kids were placed in foster care. Josephina was placed in a foster care home at four months of age and remained there until her early 20s. Fortunately for Josephina, she was placed in a loving home with a couple who had raised eight children of their own and a couple of foster kids. Her birth mom was Mexican and her father was Puerto Rican. Her foster mom was black. Child Protective Services was more concerned about placing children in loving homes rather than finding families of the same color. Her foster mom was strict but caring. Josephina was well cared for, and because her foster parents were observant Catholics, she was sent to a Catholic school where she received a good solid education. At home, she was taught manners and responsibility. Her brother Freddie and sister Iris were being fostered by families in the same congregation, so they did get to see each other from time to time. By the time Josephina was in junior high, she was super popular. She danced, played piano, and was a cheerleader. But for some reason, none of these things could hold her attention and she would quickly become bored. At the age of 13, she started smoking weed, but soon began looking for something different to get high with and discovered Coke. Not long after this, an older kid she hung out with introduced her to crack. This was the beginning of a journey into hell for Josephina. Already at the age of 14, all Josephina cared about was her next high. Her school, her friends, her parents, her siblings, her future meant absolutely nothing to her. Crack is so powerfully addictive that it becomes your number one priority in life. It certainly became hers. She sold drugs for a while to support her habit and then moved on to exotic dancing and from there took the next easy step into the world of prostitution. At the age of 17, she was a full-time hustler 
to support her crack addiction. At 19, she had her first child, LaToya. She tried to make things work with LaToya's dad, Billy, and even went back to school, but it didn't last. They split up. Then she met another man named Ronnie, and they got married. Even though Ronnie was a good man, Josefina was restless and moved out on him. Next, she met a man named Robert, who was nothing but trouble. He was a crack addict too. They were both full-blown crack addicts, and Josefina was hooking to support both their habits. During this time, she became pregnant with her second daughter, Zornay. She managed to get clean long enough to give birth to Zornay, but then she fell right back into it. Very quickly after Zornay was born, Josefina gave birth to her third child, a son named Ricky. Poor little Ricky was born with drugs in his system. Just prior to Ricky's birth, Latoya's dad, Billy, showed up and took her from Josefina. By now, Child Protective Services have taken Zornay from her and were threatening to take little Ricky too. Josefina desperately wanted to get off the drugs and get her kids back. She did make some progress in getting a place for them to live, but she actually believed she would only use the drugs until the kids were returned to her. Then she would quit. Then things would be different. She was 25 with three kids and a crack addiction which ran her life. Hustling since she turned 17, Josefina was street smart. She had seen it all. There wasn't much in this world that would have surprised her. Or so she thought. When she woke up, she had no idea what time it was or how long she had been there. Gary was gone. As she looked around the room studying her environment, she noticed a window. It was located above the mattress she was sitting on and about as high as her head. It was boarded up so it didn't provide much light. She began to take a closer look at her surroundings and it was pretty bleak and depressing. At the same time, Josefina realized that she was not only freezing, but starving too. She wrapped her arms around herself trying to warm up, but considering she was only wearing a top and was naked from the waist down in the middle of November, it didn't do much good. Just then, Josefina heard the door to the cellar open. Heidnick came back down into the cellar carrying an egg sandwich and a glass of orange juice. As hungry as she was, Josefina was too scared to eat the food. She was worried that it may be poisoned or drugged. When he held out the food to her, she turned it down. He didn't try to convince her to eat. He just said, suit yourself, took the food and left the cellar. It wasn't long before Heidnick was back, only this time he had a pick and a shovel. At first he ignored Josefina and went to work right away. He was expanding the hole. He wanted to make it wider and deeper. As he worked, he began talking to Josefina, telling her that he wanted to have a big family. He complained that something always came along to ruin his plans. Gary Heidnick was born in East Lake, Ohio on November 22, 1943. He was raised in the Cleveland suburb and attended school here until he eventually joined the Army. Heidnick was in and out of school, dropping out before he graduated. He later went on to complete his high school education while in the Army. Heidnick had an extremely contentious relationship with his father, Michael. All they ever did was fight, and for most of their relationship, they didn't even speak to each other. 
His younger brother, Terry, didn't fare much better in his relationship with their father. His father was a tool and dye maker, and his mother, Ellen, was of Creole descent and worked as a beautician. They lived a middle-class life and, by all accounts, were never happy. When the boys were just toddlers, Heidnick's parents went through an ugly divorce. The boys went to live with their mother, who soon remarried. She would marry three more times after her initial divorce from Michael, and her last two husbands would be black. The boys lived with their mom until it was time for Heidnick to start school. About this time, they went to live with their father and his new wife. This was not a good situation. Not only was their dad terribly abusive, but they didn't get along with their stepmom either. When Heidnick wet his bed, he claimed that his dad would hang his sheets out the window of their second-story home for everyone to see. And sometimes he would hang Heidnick himself out the window, holding him by his ankles. According to his younger brother Terry, once when their dad was really mad at them, he painted bullseyes onto the seat of their jeans and sent them off to school. Heidnick's brother Terry said that Heidnick was bullied in school as a child because he had an odd-shaped head. Apparently, he had fallen out of a tree directly onto the crown of his head. This injury changed the shape of his head for a while. After this, the kids called him Football Head. Growing up during the 40s and 50s, aside from being bullied, Heidnick joined the Boy Scouts and worked summer jobs. He was shy, so he didn't date much. His two main interests were business and the military. He told everyone he was going to be a millionaire when he grew up. His other ambition was to attend West Point. In fact, his father, who is described as being abusive and cruel, for some reason scraped together enough money to send Heidnick to a military academy when he was 14. Why his father would do this for Heidnick is unclear. According to the former superintendent of the academy, Heidnick did very well, but he only lasted six weeks before dropping out and going back to his previous high school where he lived with his father again and his stepmother, whom he was convinced hated him. Before he could graduate high school, Heidnick went on to join the army. Much later in life, their father would claim that they were average kids, raised in a normal household. He denied all of the cruel stories shared by the boys. Since both boys had a lifetime record of mental illness, perhaps their father is telling the truth. Who knows? In 1962, Gary was 18 and in the army. He stayed out of trouble, saved his money, but didn't make many friends. When he finished boot camp, he requested to be sent to military police school, but his request was declined because he was too young. In fact, all his subsequent requests for assignment were declined. Stenographer, parts clerk, heavy equipment operator, and electrician. What the Army was willing to train him for was hospital corpsman, a medic. Gary did well in his training and graduated with an excellent rating. He made fairly good money as a medic too, more money than he had ever had before in his young life. According to Gary, he decided to put his money to good use and became a loan shark to his fellow soldiers. He was doing pretty well until he got transferred to Germany. Unfortunately, Heidnick got shipped out so fast he didn't have time to collect on all of his outstanding loans, loans totaling almost $5,000. 
he realized there was no way he was going to get that money now and he would have to write it all off. Shit. Three months after arriving in Germany, Heidnick called in sick. He went to see the doctor complaining of dizzy spells, headaches, and blurred vision in one eye. He said he was plagued with nausea and vomiting, and doctors noticed he had a tick. His head would jerk horizontally at irregular intervals. He was examined by a neurologist, a gastroenterologist, a psychologist, and was run through a battery of tests. He was prescribed some powerful drugs during this time, drugs that were typically reserved for severe psychosis. Due to his ill health, after two months, Heidnick was shipped back to the United States. Once back in the States, he was also diagnosed with hallucinations. Three months since he first called out sick, Heidnick was finally diagnosed with a schizoid personality disorder and recommended for honorable discharge. Although Heidnick protested, the deed was done. He was discharged and judged to be 100% mentally disabled. The length of his time in the service was only 14 months, so it is surprising to me that he would begin to receive a pension for a service-connected mental disability. This pension was 100% of his salary. Unbelievable. Once discharged, Heidnick decided to settle down in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Here, he continued his education and graduated with his certificate in licensed practical nursing. He went on to attend the University of Pennsylvania and took a number of classes. With his certificate as an LPN, he was able to obtain a job at University of Pennsylvania Hospital, but was fired for sloppy work. Then he began to train as a psychiatric nurse at the Veterans Administration Hospital in Coatesville, near Philadelphia. After about four months, he was kicked out again, this time for poor attendance and bad attitude. Around this same time, Heidnick thought he would try to repair his relationship with his father and stepmother. It didn't work. His relationship with his mother wasn't any better. They had barely stayed in touch over the years except when she was bumming money or booze off him. His mother died on May 30, 1970 from bone cancer and alcoholism. She hurried her death by drinking a chemical commonly found in beauty shops called mercuric chloride. Heidnick was in and out of mental health facilities and was building up a long arrest record. He had charges for aggravated assault, carrying a pistol without a license, and carrying a firearm in public. After getting into an argument with one of his neighbors, he actually shot him in the face with a rifle. Fortunately, it only grazed his cheek. Charges were pressed and dropped without explanation. Thankfully for the neighbors, Heidnick moved out not long after this incident. When the owners of the property began to clean up, they found garbage and pornography scattered everywhere. But what really caused them to freak out was the hole they found in the basement. Heidnick dug a two-foot square hole right through the concrete floor. The space under the concrete floor was much bigger. He had dug out the dirt and created a pit large enough to hold an adult. They could only imagine why he did this or what his plans for the hole were. Next, Heidnick took up residence with a young woman named Anjanette Davidson. She was a retarded black woman who had an apartment in another poor Philadelphia neighborhood. 
and Jeanette wasn't able to read or write. She had an IQ of 49, but she didn't need to be institutionalized. Heidnick's IQ was 130. Average is considered to be around 100. And Jeanette was an easy mark for Heidnick. She was no match for him, and he took advantage of her in the worst way. He had sex with this poor woman and got her pregnant. To make matters even worse, Heidnick felt that his LPN training was sufficient enough to provide Anjanette with prenatal medical care and would not allow her to go to the doctor. When Anjanette was about eight months pregnant, her older sister showed up at her apartment and thankfully had the police with her. They escorted Anjanette to the hospital where she could be examined by a real doctor. As it turns out, Anjanette had a very large fibroid tumor which would have prevented her from delivering her baby vaginally. Instead, she had a cesarean. Anjanette only gained five pounds during her pregnancy because Heidnick basically had her on a starvation diet. Thank goodness her sister had intervened and come to her rescue. She gave birth to a daughter who was immediately put into foster care. But the good news was that the mother and child survived Heidnick's demented prenatal care regime. Heidnick was no quitter though. If anything, he was persistent. Just a few weeks after their daughter was born and thankfully placed in foster care, they paid a visit to the Sellens Grove Center. This was an institution for the mentally retarded and Anjanette's sister, Alberta, lived here. Alberta had the mental capacity of a five-year-old with an IQ of 30. She couldn't read, write, or even tell the difference between coins, but she could still feed, clothe, and clean herself. Alberta was 34 at this time and had been in the institution since she was 14. Alberta and Anjanette were thrilled to see each other and talked nonstop. Heidnick left the girls alone while he went to go get a visitor pass. It was about noon when he filled out the pass and said he would bring Alberta back the next morning. Of course, they never returned. After about 10 days, the center got a court order demanding her return. An employee of the Sellens Grove Center went straight to Heidnick's apartment, but he told the woman she wasn't there. She didn't believe him for a minute. He even let her in to look around, but Alberta was nowhere to be found. He claimed to have put her on a bus back to the center. When Alberta didn't turn up the next day, the woman from the center, along with a police escort, went back to Heidnick's apartment. This time, they searched the entire apartment building, not just Heidnick's apartment. Eventually, they found Alberta in the basement, locked in an unused storage room, shaking from fear. She ran to the woman and hugged her tightly. Back at the center, Alberta was given a full medical examination, and it was obvious that she had had recent intercourse. Her mouth showed traces of sperm, and she had gonorrhea in the throat. This was not much different than raping a child, since Alberta was like a five-year-old. Just a few weeks later, police turn up at Heidnick's apartment again, and he is arrested for kidnapping, rape, false imprisonment, unlawful restraint, involuntary deviated sexual intercourse, interfering with the custody of a committed person, and recklessly endangering another person. As expected, he pleaded innocent. He was tried by a judge and not a jury. Thankfully, 
the judge wasn't fooled by his defense strategies and found him guilty, saying, he was not only a danger to himself, but to others as well. Sadly, because Alberta was not capable of testifying on her own behalf, many of the charges had to be dropped. The judge gave Heidnick the toughest sentence he could, but it was only three to seven years. He stated that if he could have given him more, he would have. The only sentence that would have saved the lives of women in the future was a life sentence, and regrettably, that didn't happen. He only spent four short years in prison before being released. As you might imagine, Heidnick gave a completely different account of events. While Josephina is sitting on her filthy mattress, freezing to death, bruised and battered, Heidnick is digging away at the hole in the floor of his basement. While he is digging, he goes on to tell her about Anjanette and Alberta. According to Heidnick, Anjanette was happy to be having a child with him. It was her damned family that kept messing things up. Her sisters were jealous because she had a good life with a rich man. And they didn't like the idea that she was in love with a white man. It couldn't possibly be because they saw him for the terrifying freak that he was. He goes on to say the reason she only gained five pounds during her eight months of pregnancy was because she was so healthy. Josephina is playing along with Heidnik as though she understands and even shows a little sympathy, but inside she is screaming, this guy is fucking crazy. He goes on to describe Alberta as being abused by the center. They kept her locked up since she was only 14. Heidnik took pity on her and got her out of that hellhole. He took her out to lunch and shopping. When it came time for Alberta to return to the center, she didn't want to go, and it was breaking his heart. Oh my God, as if Josephina actually believes any of this crap. He describes how the center came looking for Alberta, and when they found her, locked away in a storage room in the basement of the apartment building, he was accused of kidnapping her and abusing her. He only wanted to protect her from her abusive family in the center. How could they not see that? In Heidnick's mind, the system stole Anjanette from him and the baby they had together. He tells her that all he ever wanted was to have his own family around him. He also tells Josephina that he met a white woman and got her pregnant, but she took off before the baby was born. Then he found a Filipino woman through a matrimony service, brings her to the United States and marries her. He thought that because she was Filipino, she would be submissive and easy to control, but got pissed when she didn't fall in line as he expected. He managed to get her pregnant as well, but she was smart enough to get out while she could. She went on to have the baby on her own and quickly divorced him. She has managed to avoid all contact with Heidnick ever since. Heidnick finally explains that due to all of these events, he has devised a plan to get what he wants, and Josephina is the first step in this new brilliant plan. He says to Josephina, from the book, Seller of Horror, quote, society owes me a wife and a family. I want to get 10 women and keep them here and get them all pregnant. Then, when they have babies, I want to raise those babies here too. 
will be one big happy family. Unquote. Josephina shivered. He didn't have to tell her that she was number one. After confiding all this to Josephina, he stopped working on the hole and walked over to the dirty mattress where she was sitting. He stood over her, unzipped his pants, pulled out his penis, and demanded that she perform oral sex. After a few minutes of oral sex, he decided to rape her vaginally and pumped away until he was finished. Once he finished, he headed back upstairs. As soon as Heidnik left, Josephina began desperately examining her surroundings more closely. She thought there must be a way out of here. It took quite a bit of effort, but she managed to get her left ankle free of the shackle. The chain gave her just enough lead to move around the room. This turned out to be about 12 feet. She immediately began to focus on the cover over the window. She pulled and pried and jiggled it until it finally gave way to the point where she could see some daylight. A minuscule sliver of hope was creeping into her panicked mind. She whirled around the room looking for a tool that would give her some leverage to pry the covering off the window. She spotted a pool stick and grabbed it. It worked. She was able to create enough space to open the window and squeeze through. Next thing she knew, she was in the backyard. She went out into the yard as far as she could with the chain still attached to one of her ankles and began to scream for help. She screamed and screamed, but no help came. She even began to scream in Spanish. She screamed until she was hoarse. Unfortunately for Josefina, the only one who heard her, the only one who came, was Gary Heidnick. And he was pissed. He ran into the backyard and hit her so hard she was knocked into silence. He tried to shove her back through the window and into the basement, but there was no way in hell that Josephina was going to cooperate. She used passive resistance to avoid being stuffed back through that window. She was not going back into that dungeon without a fight. So Heidnik ran back into the house and into the cellar. He grabbed the chain and started reeling her in like a fish on a hook. Finally, he got her inside and began beating her with a stick from head to toe. She was covered in welts and bruises. He then went to work reinforcing the shackles around her ankles. As he did this, he explained that even if anyone had heard her screaming, they wouldn't help. The people in this neighborhood liked him and relied on him for drugs. They weren't going to do anything to mess with that. But he did issue a warning before stuffing her into the pit, saying, If you ever try something like that again, I will kill you. At five foot six inches tall, Josefina was too big to fit into the hole. He pushed and shoved at her until her body was so contorted that she was literally folded up. Her head was down by her knees and her arm was bent around her head and she was in agony. She screamed and complained, but Heidnik didn't bat an eye. Once he had her in the hole, he dragged a big, heavy board over her until she was completely trapped and surrounded by darkness. Josephina screamed and pleaded, telling him that she couldn't breathe, begging for air. Heidnik simply ripped the board off and jerked her out of the hole by her hair. He picked up the stick again and began beating her. When he had her beaten into submission, he once again stepped her back into the pit. 
As Josephina whimpered, he pulled the board back over her and covered it with several heavy bags of dirt to hold it down. Heidnick left the basement but quickly returned carrying a radio. He turned it to a local rock station and cranked the volume way up. While lying there in the darkness of the hole, Josephina could smell the dirt she was lying on. And she realized that Heidnick must have put something extremely heavy on top of the board because she couldn't budge it. Then she heard his footsteps climbing the stairs, leaving her all alone. Again, she yelled and screamed for help, but nothing happened. She woke up the next morning cold, stiff, and sore. Her arm had fallen asleep. She knew it was 7 a.m. Thanksgiving morning because the radio was still blaring and the radio disc jockeys would regularly report the time. At 9 p.m. that evening, she realized that she had been held captive for 24 hours. Josephina is trying to wrap her head around the fact that Heidnick has a history of kidnapping women and abusing women and that she is not the first. And most definitely will not be the last. Her ears perked up. Josephina heard footsteps and crying. What the hell was going on, she thought. She was still crammed into the pit and the radio was blasting away, but she could still hear Heidnick telling someone to shut up. She could hear him as he tried to reassure this person saying, I'm not going to hurt you. Just shut up. Why are you crying? She could hear them getting closer and closer. And then Heidnick pulled the big bags of dirt off the board, slid the board away and yanked her out of the hole by her arm. She was in a great deal of pain, stiff and could barely stand. She was lightheaded and dizzy from lack of food. When her head finally stopped spinning, she saw he was holding a young naked black girl and her hands were cuffed behind her back. Josephina couldn't help but think, this is just how it was when he brought her down here. The young woman was sobbing uncontrollably. Heidnick casually says, Nicole, this is Sandy. Sandy, this is Nicole. Heidnick never did know that Josephina was her real name. He behaved as if this were a perfectly normal situation and he was merely introducing two of his friends to each other. Then Heidnick left. That will do it for part one. Join me back here very soon for part two. Thanks again for tuning in to Crime Happens. All episodes are researched, written, recorded, and audio mixed by me. Crime Happens is available on Stitcher, Spotify, Google, Apple, and other podcast platforms. Please follow or subscribe wherever you listen. Check out my website at crimehappens.com. And be sure to follow me on Instagram at crime underscore happens. I'll be back very soon with an all new episode. Until then, I wish you well.